Way to go, Cooper, right? Read all those names like a boss, right? I didn't expect to throw all of those on them, but they're in there. Second Timothy is Paul's last inspired epistle. Paul, his great conversion began pretty quickly as Paul obeyed the gospel and was off preaching pretty quickly around the world, sharing the gospel with other people. His conversion was amazing, and he had totally turned his life around. And yet, for his great conversion, Paul also had his difficulties and struggles. He had been shipwrecked, imprisoned, beaten with rods, bitten by a poisonous snake, and not to mention his daily care and anxieties for the church. But when you get to 2 Timothy, this is the end of Paul's rope. Now, other times in Paul's life, Paul had been in prison. And if you read the epistles like Philippians and Ephesians, Paul hoped to get free. He had this sort of optimistic spirit that things would turn out for the best. But you don't read that spirit in 2 Timothy. Paul has pretty much accepted at this point that this is the end. In fact, he says as much in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 7, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished the course and I have kept the faith. But Paul's not pessimistic. In verse 8, he says, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me in that day. Not to me only, but all them that love his appearing. Paul's on his way out and he's accepted that. And so what he does in these final four chapters of his last inspired epistle is to encourage his young protege, Timothy, to stick with it, to keep the faith. He wants Timothy to come and see him. Paul's in a hurry. Three times in this book, in chapter one, verse four, he says, I want to see you. I'm mindful of your tears. In chapter four and verse nine, he says, do your best to come quickly. And then in verse 21, which Cooper read a moment ago, he says, hurry up and come to me. He wants to see Timothy so that he can share some things with him. He wants his jacket that he left at Troas. And he also wants his book, Second Timothy four and verse 13. And he wants Timothy to come with speed. What I want to key in on tonight is that phrase in verse 21 where he says your translation may say this differently. Do your best or give your utmost or with diligence come before winter. This would have been important. Commentators say that in the Roman Empire, they closed the seas during the winter months for them, which would have been about November 10th through March 10th. It would have been dangerous to travel. And even if Timothy would have tried to find an alternate route, eventually he would have had to make his way across the Adriatic Sea. And Paul, having been in shipwrecks himself, see Acts 27, knew how dangerous this could have been for young Timothy. And so he says, Timothy, whatever you're doing in Ephesus, you've got to drop that and do your best to come to me before winter. If Timothy doesn't come before winter, he may never see his father in the faith again. And so he says, hurry up and come to me and do it with speed. Our winter begins. It felt like it began this morning, but technically winter begins Wednesday, December 21st. But what I want us to talk about tonight briefly is let winter stand for anything in your life and in my life that may be a time in which what we need to do or what we desire to do, it'll be too late to accomplish it. If for Timothy, it was the physical winter that would have made it impossible for him to see his father in the faith, Paul, I want us tonight to think about winter in our lives being things that we know we need to do. And we need to do them before the time runs out, before it's impossible to do these things and whatever we're going to do about these things. We need to hurry up and do them before winter. Tonight's lesson will be topical. So you're going to need your Bible. We'll do some flipping through to some different passages. But I hope we all have a sense of urgency about ourselves like Paul wanted Timothy to have, because the reality is for every one of us, our time is running out. Let's begin. Here's number one. Before winter, we should stop making excuses. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable beginning in verse 16. A certain man had a banquet and he invited many and he sent his servant out saying in verse 17, all things are ready. Come to the feast. And then in verse 18, it says they all with one consent, they began to make excuses. 
And you know the excuses from verse 18 down through verse 20. One bought a piece of property and he needed to go see it. Another had bought some oxen that he wanted to test out. And then the third guy married a wife and he couldn't come. But for whatever we make of their excuses, they all were pretty much saying the same thing. And that is something else was a priority for them. Something else was more important. They wanted to do that thing more than they wanted to see about the business of this master's feast. And their time ran out. Matthew 6:33, Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all all these things will be added to you. There are some things which you and I must learn to do first. And before winter comes, before it's too late in our lives, we should stop making excuses. We sometimes plan to do things and we really want to do things and we hope to do certain things. Specifically, I'm thinking tonight about things in the kingdom of God and for the sake of Jesus Christ. But too much postponement will push those things onto tomorrow's calendar and they'll never be done. Proverbs 27, 1, Solomon says, boast not yourself of tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring forth. Don't think about what we'll do tomorrow. Let's try and do our best to get it done today. Before winter comes in your life, stop making excuses. The truth is, sometimes we're far too easy on ourselves. We make plans and we say we're going to do things and we push things out of the focus that really should be center in our lives. And Jesus tells this parable to say eventually time will run out. If you look at Luke 14 and verse 21 and 24, what the master of this feast eventually does is he goes out into the highways and into the hedges and into the alleys. And he invites other people to come in and he says those men that were invited will never taste of this feast. They've wasted their opportunity because of their excuses. And finally, they're shut out. And you know what the parable stands for. It's about the kingdom of God and God inviting everybody from everywhere into his company and into his presence. But excuse after excuse eventually will lead to us being shown the exit. So Jesus says, stop making excuses. Throughout Jesus's earthly ministry, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Jesus was the most loving person there ever was. But there was one thing the Savior couldn't stand. He would stop people in their tracks if they even began to make an excuse. In Matthew 15, 32 to 36, he told the disciples, give the crowd something to eat. And they said, but master, we only have four loaves. Jesus says, what do you have? Stop making excuses. Let's talk about what you have. Peter, Luke 5, 4 through 5, let down your net for a catch. Peter started in with excuses. Master, we've toiled all night. No excuses. Just let down your nets. He met a man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter five. And he says, sir, do you want to be healed? And the man started in with excuses. He says, master, I've got nobody when the water stirred up. Do you want to be healed? No excuses allowed in your life and in my life. We should do our best to remove excuses. Here's the question tonight. Are there things you know you need to do that you're putting off and you plan to do them and you're hoping to do them, but you just haven't? Brian Tracy in his book, Eat That Frog, 21 Ways to Avoid Procrastination and Accomplish More in Less Time, talks about how we can do this. He titles the book Eat That Frog because it's really a thread about how to get things done. And he says, you know, the hard things in our lives, the hard things in our days are like eating frogs. Sometimes we don't want to do them. But if you ever have to eat a frog, you should eat it first thing in the morning. And if you've got to eat two frogs, Tracy says, eat the ugliest one first, because the longer you wait, you'll rationalize and you'll talk yourself out of it. He says, you know what people should do? We should treat the most important things in our lives as if we've only got 24 hours to do them. Focus on those things first and whatever time is left, then do the rest. Do away with excuses because the time may run out. Say to yourself, I'm going to lead my family in the ways of Christ. Ephesians 6 and verse 4. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm going to use my talents and abilities in the service to the king. First Corinthians 15 and verse 58. I will not make excuses before winter comes. And we say, I wish I did. I wanted to do. I thought to do. I plan to do. Appreciate that in the end, Jesus only crowns the doer. And so we should do and not make excuses. Here's number two. I can't see it back there. So I have to turn here. Here's number two. Before winter comes, 
learn the Bible better. Turn your Bible to 2 Timothy 2 and notice what Paul says in verse 15. You know this verse and everybody in the world probably memorized this in the King James. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. It's interesting. The word that Paul uses that we translate study. Newer translations may have be diligent or give every effort. It is the exact same word that he uses in 2 Timothy 4.21. The one we read a moment ago, do your best to come before winter. Hurry up. Paul uses this same word to say, Timothy, give your every effort. Timothy, study to come quickly. He says the same thing about Timothy's responsibility to the word of God. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that won't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Here's number two tonight. Before winter comes, before it's too difficult for us, before it's impossible, learn the Bible better. Nobody, no matter how much they study the Bible, how long they study the Bible, will ever learn everything there is to know about the Bible. And yet we need to give ourselves over to diligent study of it. The Bible's a challenging book. It's a big book. If you really think about it, it's 66 different books with the deepest concepts in the world contained within its pages. Even Peter says some of the things that Paul wrote were hard to understand. Second Peter 3, 15 through 16. If you ever read the Bible and walk away from a passage saying, I have no idea what that was all about. You're in good company. Peter said some of the things that Paul said were difficult. And yet we've got to become better students of it because we really don't have all day to get serious about studying the word of God. And so we should give ourselves over to it. Study the word of God and get to know it and give yourself over to it. Paul tells Timothy, study so that you can present yourself approved to God, because that's who it matters that we please in the end. And as it relates to our knowledge of the Bible and our study of it, we should be in haste doing this. You know, it's great to start in your Bible in January in Genesis and end with the last amen, Revelation 22, 21 in December. But that's not the only way to do it. You could start tonight, Matthew or Mark. And then you say, well, I'm going to go and get the prophets. And then I'll come back and get the epistles. You may say, you know what? I'm going to start with the psalm of day, whatever it is. We need to start doing it. I was looking this up this afternoon. You could read at least five of the books of the Bible in the time it probably takes you to walk from your bedroom to your kitchen. Second and third John, Jude, Obadiah and Philemon all can be read within five minutes. And you can never make this point without somebody saying, well, wait a minute. It's really not just about reading the Bible. We need to study it and then to live it. And that's right. But you can't do that unless you first read it. And so in Ezra seven and chapter seven and verse 10, Ezra seven and verse 10 is to the Old Testament with Second Timothy two fifteen is to the New Testament. Notice Ezra seven and verse 10 in the Old Testament. It says about Ezra, Ezra set his heart. To do the prepare to start to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Ezra made up his mind that he was going to digest the word of God, take it in for himself and then teach other people before winter comes. Learn the Bible better. It's important that we know it without the word of God and knowledge of it will be destroyed. Hosea four and verse six. Religious error creeps into our lives and even into congregations because people don't know the Bible. Matthew twenty two, twenty nine. Jesus says you do err, not knowing the scriptures. A knowledge of the word of God when it's lacking will be unfit for the judgment. 1248, Jesus says, he that rejects me and doesn't receive my words has one that judges him. These words will judge you in the last day. And a failure to know the Bible will make sure we fail an open book test. John said, I saw the books open. Revelation 20 and verse 12. Before winter comes, make up your mind that you're going to learn the Bible better than you know it. Decide right now that I'm going to do this. Don't put this off. Don't wait. Don't make excuses. We talked about that a moment ago. Just say, you know what? I'm going to become a constant companion. My Bible is going to become my constant companion and I'm going to learn it better. I'm going to start right now. I won't wait till January 1st. I'm going to make up my mind that I want to study the Bible right now because the time may come when it's too late. 
We should pray to God. Remember how short my time is. Psalm 89, 47. And teach me to number my days that I might apply my hearts to wisdom. How many years have you said this is the year I'm going to make my way through it? This is the year I'm going to get serious. But winter's coming. Soon it'll be too late. How do we get into the Bible? Let me give you some practical ways to do this. One of the ways is through consistency. Listen, more than you need a Bible hack for Bible study, you need a Bible habit. Instead of thinking about a book that's going to help me or some shortcut way, more than any of that matters, your consistency and my consistency matters. Find your way. I'm not championing any one way to do this. I'm saying find your way and stick to it and do it until you die. Consistently, the psalmist says day and night, the blessed man meditates in the law of God. Here's number two. How do you get into the word of God creatively? Proverbs 5 and verse 1, Solomon tells his son, listen to my instruction. We've talked before in lessons about how you can audibly listen to the word of God. I love the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, 28. The Bible says he's just come from worship and he's sitting in his car, not his car, but his chariot. You know what I mean. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah, Acts 8, 28. Talk about being creative. He was redeeming the time as he was traveling. He was reading the Bible in his car. I know several women here have decided that this next year they're going to get into writing the Bible with Carla Moore's method. You know, there are all kinds of ways to get into the Bible. The primary thing is make sure that you get into it. Be creative. Do whatever it takes. What about this? Capitalizing. Martha said, what is Mary doing? And Jesus says, she's sitting at my feet hearing the word of God. How can I capitalize on this? You say you've got a lunch break. Can you capitalize on doing that? Is there a time in your house when it's really quiet? I know for some people that's absolutely not, but it might be very early in the morning or late at night. Capitalize on the time and sit at his feet and learn it collectively. One of the ways to learn the Bible, and this is how people learn the Bible for thousands of years. We're in a small group of individuals who have their own copy of the word of God for centuries. People came to gatherings like this to learn the word of God. Paul was saying, Colossians 4, 16, the letter that I sent you, give it to the Laodiceans and the letter from them. Get it yourself and read it. First Thessalonians 5, 27. May this epistle be read by all the holy brethren. Never sell Bible classes short. It's where we can engage and learn the word of God and we can do it collectively. Let's do it by memory. Sometimes people say, I can't memorize the Bible. Yes, you can. You may not be able to memorize as much as others, but you can memorize Bible for yourself. Somebody says, I could never memorize a whole chapter of the Bible. Have you tried Psalm 117? It's only two verses. Maybe you could. David says in Psalm 119, 11, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do we learn the Bible? By memorizing. Take the smallest verses, the smallest chunks and write them on the tablet of your heart. Winter's coming. And one day you'll say, I used to be able to remember everything. I had such a sharp memory. Don't waste it. Make up your mind that you'll use it. And here's the last one. Learn the word of God attentively. Sergius Paulus saw Barnabas and Paul coming to preach to him the word of God. And the text says he was eagerly anticipating and wanted to hear the word of God. How is our posture toward hearing the word of God? How do we respond to it before winter comes? Learn the Bible better. Not how somebody else knows it. I mean, better than you know it right now, because the time will come when you may not be able to read as good, when the time in your life will come when maybe you don't have as much free time to study it. Make up your mind that you're going to do it right now. Jim Henry didn't learn to read until he was 98 years old. He said he grew up on the farm and he was pulled out of school to go and work on one. And so he didn't know A from Z. He had never read anything in the entirety of his life until a literacy tutor from the literacy volunteer showed up at his house in Mystic, Connecticut. And they taught Mr. Jim how to read. But better than just learning how to read, he ended up writing his own book in a fisherman's language. And it's about all of his episodes in deep sea fishing. I bring up Mr. Jim to say it's never too late until it's too late. 
You can learn the Bible. You can do it. We were made for this. God has not made his word so difficult that it's beyond the reach of every one of us. But before winter comes, start right now. Find your own method. Get your own system and commit to it. I love what Paul tells Timothy. Study to show yourself approved, meaning give diligence. This is not about convenience. It's going to cost something. It's going to be difficult, but it's going to be worth it. Before winter comes in your life, make up your mind. I'm going to know the Bible better this time next year, better than I know it right now. I'm going to make up my mind to make this personal because I want to know him. I want to know his word. I want to know it for myself. Away with this idea. Well, I'll just ask the preacher. And I know somebody that knows the Bible better than me. I'll ask them. I want to know the Bible for myself. And I'm going to give every effort to present myself approved to God by learning his word. Now, here's number three. Before winter comes, love like Jesus says. Jesus said the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. This was embedded in the old law. Deuteronomy six, four and five. Israel was to do this and it's carried over into the new Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. And you read those words. Love God, love neighbor. Nobody in this auditorium of any appreciable age struggles to read those words and know what they mean. And yet we struggle. Because people are difficult, people are complicated, and people will just write down, get on your nerves. And yet the Bible says you've got to love them. It starts with loving God. God loved us first, 1 John 4 and verse 19. God is love, 1 John 4 and verse 8. And God says, I want you to love me back. Love me back how? With everything that you have. With all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything that's a part of your being, God says, I want you to give that back over to me. Somebody says, well, I've got that down. I don't love anyone or anything else more than I love God, and that's great. Now, what are you doing about loving your neighbors? What are we doing about that? Before winter comes, we should let loose with both hands and love like the Bible tells us. This goes back to the first point. We can make excuses. People are difficult. People are irritating. People don't understand. And yet we should not stand before the judgment bar of God, having failed to do something that's repeated over and over again in every covenant and in every dispensation. God says, I want you to love people and I want you to do it just like I've loved you before winter comes. Love like the Bible says. In first Corinthians 13, one through seven, Paul says, whatever else you do spiritually, if you don't love, you failed. If you give everything you've ever had away, philanthropy, Paul says, if you don't love people, it doesn't mean anything. If you're a martyr, you would die for the Christian faith. You give your body to be burned, Paul says. If you don't love people, it doesn't mean anything. If you were eloquent and a great public speaker and you could communicate, Paul says, it wouldn't matter. If you didn't love, it wouldn't mean anything. If you could speak in different languages and you were a genius, Paul says, without love, it doesn't mean anything. Love never fails. We fail love all the time. Love's never failed us. And so in first Corinthians 16, 14, Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. And before winter comes, we should make this our mark that we've loved well. It's the goal of the Christian life. First Timothy one and verse five, Paul says the end of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a sincere faith and a good conscience. That's what God wants from every one of us. And sometimes we make excuses. If we're not careful, this world will hearten us. It'll make us callous toward other people. People have disappointed you. And sometimes we say to ourselves, That's not happening to me again. I'm going to tell you what, I won't be loving anybody that doesn't love me. And I'm not going to be reaching out across the fence first to be forgiven, folks. And listen, those people in their worldliness and their secular ideology, I'm telling you, they better get with it. I'm not going to love them until they straighten up. And if they don't say you say I'm sorry first because I'm not going across the fence. And yet the passages from the Bible stare us right in the face. How can a man love God whom he hasn't seen and fail to love his brother who he has seen? First John 4, 20 and 21. Jesus says, by this, all men will know you're my disciples 
by the love that you have one for another, John 13, 34 and 35. This in no way means we approve of everything, that we like everything that other people do, that we're in agreement with everything that everybody practices. The idea of love in the Bible is not the world's flimsy idea of approve me and accept me. It means something else entirely. When the Bible mentions love, it has two ideas in mind. Number one, to have the best will in mind for the other individual and to love them as a image bearer of the king of the universe. You got their best interests at heart and you love them because they bear the image of God. That means correcting them sometimes, telling them when they're wrong. But it also means loving them like God's love does. If we wait on other people to behave like they should before we love them, we're doing something God never did to us. You know, God didn't wait for you to get your act together before he started loving you or me. He just loved us as if we already were everything we should have been to begin with. When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Perhaps for a good man, some would die and for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans five, six through eight. What if we stopped waiting on other people to become all that they should be before we love them and just do what God's told us? Our responsibility is to love. It's their responsibility to get their lives in order. Winter is coming. And one day we'll stand before perfect love and all of his fullness. And for every excuse we can make on why we held back, why we went halfway, there'll be Jesus standing there. And he'll look at us and say, I love till the end. John 13 and verse one. What an amazing verse. John says he knew the Passover was near and it was his time to be delivered back to the father. And he loved those who were his in the world. And he loved them to the end right before he washed their feet. All of those traitors and people that would abandon him, even Judas. And How can we stand before a man like that, a God like that and say, well, I was going to love, but I intended to love like you, except Well, you know, Jesus, people are people before winter comes. Let's just do it like he says. Let's love everybody we meet just like God wants us to, because that's what God has done for us. No excuses allowed because winter's on its way. Now, here's number four. Before winter comes, get rid of pet sins. You know, Romans 3:23. for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But if that wasn't in the Bible, you would still know this. You would know this through two avenues. By your eyes and by experience, you know, everybody in the world sins. There's none righteous. No, not one. Everybody in the world has fallen short of God's glory and we continue to come short. That's present tense. All of sin and are coming short of the glory of God. That's a reality. In fact, if we deny this, that's a sin. First John one, eight and ten. John says, if you say you have no sin, you deny and the truth's not in you. If you say you have not sinned, you make God a liar. Human beings sin. We're weak. And I want to be clear on this before we go forward so you don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. Everybody in the world, the most faithful Christian in the world still sins. And yet the New Testament says no one anywhere can run in the same direction of sin without any resistance and yet have God's approval and please him. Everybody in the world sins, and yet the New Testament teaches no one can run in the direction of sin without resistance and have God's approval. First John three and verse six, first John five and verse 18. And so before winter comes, get rid of pet sins. What do we mean by pet sins? I mean, everybody sins. But when I say pet sins, I mean, these are the kinds of sins that you and I may engage in like we engage in blinking our eyes. How many times did you blink your eyes today? Somebody says I wasn't keeping count. It just sort of happened. It's just by osmosis. I just do it without even thinking about it. And maybe there are sins in our lives like that. At one point we fought against it, but then we've just kind of surrendered it. And we've said, hey, this is how I am. This is who I am. And this is just my pet sin. Turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, the Hebrew writer is encouraging these Christians to live by faith. And he says, seeing that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily ensnare us. This idea of laying aside, it's the same word that's used in Acts 7:58 for those guys that took off their coats and laid them at the feet of the young man named Saul. When he says lay aside sin, he's saying take it off just like clothes. And that's the very idea I want to capture tonight. I want to say about sins that we wear just like we wear our clothes. We just sort of have them on us. They've become a part of us. And before winter comes, we've got to get rid of pet sins. The Bible makes this point over and over again. James 1:21, he'll say, lay apart all filthiness and overflowing wickedness and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which can save your soul. Or first Peter two and verse one, lay aside all malice, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking and desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Or Colossians three, eight, put off all malice and anger and wrath. Lie not one to another because you've put off the old man with his deeds. What is that, Paul? You've got written of got rid of the pet sins in your life. And we have to do the same thing. Let me use an illustration to sort of make this come home for us. Let's just say, for example, and this was in Q&A recently, so this would be an easier one to use. Let's just say a person always cursed their whole life. That's all they had ever done. But now they believe Jesus is the son of God. They've turned over their life and their language to Jesus. They're immersed in water. They rise to walk in newness of life, but they still struggle with their speech on occasion. They still curse. They make mistakes. They confess. They're doing the best that they can. But if somebody on one occasion said, you know what, this is just who I am. And you can insert lust and lying and anger and covetousness, whatever you want in the blank. But if a person said, whether verbally or by their actions, you know what? I fought this as long as I could. God, this is how I am. Take it or leave it. Woe to the man or woman in that condition. Every one of us must be wrestling against sin and we will run into opposition and hardship. But before winter comes, we should get rid of any sins in our lives that we have said, this is just who I am and I'm not going to change that. This is just a part of me. Turn your Bible to the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter two, and notice verse 15. This book is about a love story between a man and a woman, and they are planning to get married. And in chapter two, this happens throughout the book. But there are these odes that they sing one toward another. And Song of Solomon, chapter two, in verse 15, the woman says to the man, catch the foxes, the little foxes, because they spoil the vineyard and our blossom is in the vineyard. That phrase, catch the foxes, the little foxes, what does that mean? It means sometimes the smallest things make the biggest splash. Catch those things before they ruin everything. She was talking about love. I'm talking about our lives. Catch the little foxes in life. The things that you feel like are just a part of you. Sometimes this happens with me. I'll just be personal tonight. I'm not perfect. I'm working on sin just like you. And I may say about myself, you know what? I'm just not patient. I just don't have patience for people with certain things. And I may just say that matter of factly, but... I should be saying to myself in those moments, Hiram, you know what? You can't just say that. You don't get to just tell God that, well, I'm just not patient and this is just how it is. Get rid of pet sins. Get rid of them because winter is coming. Keep fighting back against the sins that we may just commit habitually and think God just has to accept them. He doesn't and he won't. And so how do we shred them? Get rid of pet sins by brutal honesty. David says in Psalm 51 and verse three, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before you. Can you say that? I'm a liar. I lie all the time. People just catch me and lie. I didn't just slip up. This is who I am. I find myself lying. I'm going to be honest. I didn't just take a bad look. I'm a luster. Brutal honesty. I'm honest. This is who I am. I always find myself in conversations and most of it's about other people in a negative way. I'm a gossip. Brutal honesty. David was able to do that. And he says, this is who I am. But after that, there's got to be confession. 
That's, there's a difference. Confession is saying to God, I don't want to live this way. Proverbs 28 and verse 13, Solomon says, he that covers his sin will not prosper, but he that confesses and abandons it will find mercy. First John 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Tell God about the sin and then there's got to be repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's not just feeling sorry. Repentance isn't when you cry. Repentance is when you change. It's not just saying, you know what? I'm sorry I got caught doing this It's saying, hey, this sent Jesus to the cross and I've got to do better. In fact, I will do better and I may never get over this completely, but I will fight it till my dying day. I will make sin uncomfortable to live with in my life. And then there's prayer. Jesus prayed for Peter, Luke 22, resolve and resistance. Psalm 17 and verse three, David says, I purpose that my mouth will not transgress. I don't know if David could say that the rest of his entire life, but what a goal to aim at. He says, God, test my words and try them. Prove me. You'll find nothing. I purpose my mouth will not transgress. He just made up his mind. You know, we can do that. Just make up our minds and say, I won't be a slave. There is no one sin that I have to commit and I intend to fight it. And then in the last place, there's accountability. James 5.16 says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. I know we're sometimes afraid of James 5.16, the crossroads and prayer partners. But listen, it's wise and healthy to confess your faults. Yes, publicly, but even one on one and to have somebody to say, hey, keep me accountable. And when they see you doing it, I'm not talking about a yes man or a yes woman. Somebody that will say, now, you know, you shouldn't be talking like that. And didn't you say you were going to stop that? And are you still you smoking again? I thought you gave that up in the drinking. And what about that language? Confess your faults one to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Accountability, honesty, because winter's coming. And we may run out of time to do what we know we should do, to shred the sins we know we should give up. The things that we just have sort of been doing so long that we've just accepted. Hey, this is how I am. It doesn't have to be. We can fight back against it. But the reality is for every one of us, time's running out. I believe this is number five. Kelly, is this number five? I can always count on her for sure. Okay, obey the gospel. Before winter comes, obey the gospel. Paul was a powerful preacher, read his sermons in the book of Acts, read the letters to the churches. But one of the most impressive things he does is in Acts chapter 24. He preached to Felix and he reasoned with him about righteousness, self-control and the coming judgment. And the Bible says Felix trembled. I've got a hard time keeping people awake. Paul preached and a man shook. He was afraid. He challenged them. But guess what? For all that we could say about that sermon, Felix didn't move a muscle. He didn't obey the gospel. He didn't do anything except shake and said to Paul, when I have a more convenient season, go your way. When I have a more convenient season, I'll call for you before winter comes. I know I'm preaching to a Sunday night crowd and many of us have obeyed the gospel, but there may be some who haven't and some who will watch this later on or online or who even are watching right now who need to obey the gospel before winter comes. There may be seven different types of people under this umbrella. There may be those that grew up in a non-religious environment. Now they believe Christianity is the truth, but they haven't obeyed the gospel. You know, that's great to say, I believe Christianity is the way to live. But if you don't obey the gospel, it's all for naught. And then there may be others who say, you know what? I grew up around the church and I, I pretty much Lehman's my home. I've grown up in churches of Christ. These are my folks, but they've never obeyed the gospel themselves. And just like you can't stand in a garage and turn into a car, you can't be around Christians and just, well, I'm, I'm just one of you. You've got to obey the gospel yourself. And maybe somebody who's done something else, maybe said a prayer or had a religious experience or done something else that the New Testament does not recognize as the line crossing the line from sinner to saved. But I just want to say before winter comes, make sure that you have obeyed the gospel the way the New Testament says. 
Acts 22, 16, Paul's recounting his conversion. And you remember what he says? And I said to him, why do you wait? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I've quoted that verse hundreds of times to emphasize the washing away your sins and calling on the name of the Lord. But sometimes we read past verses too quickly. The first part of that is important. Ananias said to Saul, Saul, why are you waiting? And maybe he paused. Why are you waiting? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you know, that's a good question. Maybe somebody says I'm waiting because I'm unaccountable and wait, you should. But maybe somebody's waiting because they say, well, I'm waiting to get things in line. I'm waiting to be perfect. That's a bad reason. Do you know there are people that plan to obey the gospel in 2023? I mean, they plan on it. They want to make it an extravagant event. They've got a date selected, maybe a wedding, an anniversary, maybe Easter. And as admirable as it is, it's foolish because there are two things that they don't know and neither do you. One, when they're going to die and two, when Jesus is going to come back. And so they wait in vain. They should obey the gospel right now, just like people did in the first century. I suppose this has always happened, but it's become more popular in recent years. You've seen these posts on social media and other places. People are obeying the gospel in their later years, people in their 90s and even in their hundreds. And sometimes it takes several people to do this. We baptized a man in Florida who was 90 years old. He had refused to obey the gospel for a long time when he got ready to do so. We had to go to the pool at the YMCA, let him down. It was three or four of us and we had to lower him down in the water. And you know what? That's a great thing. And we ought to praise God anytime. The 11th hour is still good. It's better than not at all. And yet, what about all the people who never made it there? What about all the people who planned to do it? And then they got in a situation or put themselves in a predicament when what they really intended to do just eventually couldn't happen. We should obey the gospel now. But more than that, we don't want to give the devil any years. As soon as we realize that we're in the stage of accountability, we realize that we believe Jesus is the son of God and we want to turn our lives over to him. We should obey the gospel before winter comes because we might plan to do it and hope to do it. And then eventually it never gets done. And just like the door was shut on those foolish virgins, one day Jesus will shut the door and he'll shut it forever. And so we should obey the gospel right now when we have the opportunity and do not delay because it'll eventually be too late for every one of us. Before winter comes, make sure that you've obeyed the gospel. Here's number six. Before winter comes, comprehend the love of God. This was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. He said that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Before winter comes, comprehend, at least try to comprehend how much God loves every one of us. David Zoll in his book, Seculosity, talks about the fact that no matter what Pew Research tells you, no matter what any polls you read tell you, that our world, especially in the West, we're becoming more secular. And some people have called us the irreligious society. It's just not true. People haven't stopped believing in God. They've simply changed God's. When I meet people and they say, are you religious? My response is always yes. I thought everybody was because everybody's religious. We can't help but worship God or gods of some sort because we want someone or something to tell us that we're enough, that we matter, that we count. And the reality is, after all of the idols in this world have failed us, God will still be there with his arms outstretched saying to everybody in the world, come home. And so Paul prays for Christians, the Ephesians, and he says, I want you to know the love of Christ. But notice verse 19, underline these two words. He says, know the love of Christ. And then right after that, he says, it surpasses knowledge. He says, know what you can't know, but at least give it a shot. God loves us more than we can imagine. And some people, they grew up in homes that were just not affectionate. We don't hug in this house. We don't tell each other we love one another. You just kind of know. And in those environments, when people hear, hey, God loves you, they're kind of looking for the fine print. 
looking for the loophole. And what they need to realize is there are no loopholes. This isn't too good to be true. It's just true. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Lamentation 322. But then there are others who've been loved from the time they came into the world and they hear God loves you. He really does. And the best they can do is equate it with their earthly experience. And Paul's saying, no, it's deeper than that. It's higher than that. It's richer than that. It's stronger than that. Know the love of God. If you know this one, the other five points all just come together. If we realize how much God loves us. In Isaiah 54 and verse 10, he says, though the mountains depart and the hills be removed, my steadfast love will not depart. My covenant of peace will not be removed. Oh, you Israel on whom I have compassion. He's made up his mind about this and God's going to love you whether you like it or not. Now, his salvation is conditional, but his love is unconditional. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31 and verse three. And though we will never know it perfectly, Paul is praying for the Ephesians and us by extension to give it a try to try to think about how much God loves us and then to love them back. If the only set of eyes in all of human existence and all of the world look down on you and say, I love you, I care about you, you matter. And if you really believe that, it'll change everything about you. It'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you treat other people. You'll realize you're done performing. There's nobody left to impress. You already approved in Jesus. Just keep walking in the light and serve him and give him your very best. And don't make any more excuses. The Bible doesn't tell us if Timothy made it. We hope he did. I hope that when Paul wrote this letter, And Tychicus got to Ephesus and delivered it to Timothy, whatever sermon Timothy was working on, whatever counseling he was engaged in, that he stopped everything right away and said, I've got to get to Paul and I've got to get there before winter comes. If he did, what a great embrace and reunion it was when he saw his mentor for the final time before Paul died at the hand of Nero Caesar. But we don't know if he ever really made it. But this is what we do know. No matter whether he did or not, winter came. And in our lives, every one of our lives, a winter is coming. The things that are on our calendars, the things we plan to do, the things we really hope and our most sincere and devoted intentions. There'll come a day when it's impossible, when it's too late, when all of our wishing will be for naught. And may the words of Paul ring in our ears from day to day. Hurry up and get things done before winter. Maybe tonight somebody needs to obey the gospel. We've already talked about what it takes to do that. And you don't have to do that in a public fashion. You can do that privately. But if you believe Jesus is Christ. And you're ready to repent and turn from sin. You won't be sinless, but you're ready to turn from sin and confess Jesus as the son of God. We'd be happy to immerse you in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, just like the Bible says. Maybe you're a Christian and, you know, winter's coming and you've been struggling with things. You've been babying some pet sins and you've just said this one's just going to kind of stick around. I've got rid of the big stuff. But remember, the little foxes spoil the vineyard. We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage us like we always do. And if you need to respond, come now as together we stand and sing.